I love this church. This is a great place to be. I'm thankful that I'm here. I'm thankful that I have the opportunity to, to uh, preach God's word this morning. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Matthew chapter 26 as we consider the last week of Jesus' life and we come to that Thursday. We're going to spend most of our time in Matthew 26. We'll also look to the Gospel of John. He has some things in there that aren't found in the other Gospels, John 13 and following. We'll start off in Matthew 26. Let me pray for us this morning. God, as we come before you now, we ask, Lord, that if our, Lord, if there be any hardness in our heart, that you would uh, remove that. Give us a, a heart that is tender to you, that receives your word. Father, if, if, if our eyes are blinded, if there are scales on our eyes, Lord, would you remove that, that we might see Christ for who he is. Lord, if our, if our ears are dull of hearing, Lord, help us this morning to hear the voice of our good shepherd, and that as obedient sheep, we will respond in faith, and that we will follow him. And this is our prayer in Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever had a really busy day? I know some of you are like, yeah, pretty much every day. For me, it was Monday, February 13th. I, I went to work at the seminary. I taught a nine o'clock Greek class until 10.30. Then I was supposed to have a break where I did some prep and, and, and eat lunch, and instead I met with a student unexpectedly. And then uh, in the afternoon, I taught a New Testament class followed by a two-hour committee meeting, which those are always fun. And then uh, that was followed by a two-hour elder meeting. When I got home, immediately had to go pick up one of my kids from soccer practice, rush home, eat dinner on the go, take said child to indoor soccer game that began at 9.30 on a school night, uh, and then get home at about 10.30 that evening. You know, I felt, I felt exhausted. I thought, man, I, how did I get so busy? How did that happen? Well, it does happen. Busyness isn't necessarily bad, but sometimes we fill our lives with things that maybe aren't the best. As a matter of fact, we know this is a problem because Pastor Kevin DeYoung, you may have heard of him, he wrote a book called Crazy Busy, a mercifully short book for uh, a really big problem. Crazy Busy, and he wrote the book not because he's an expert on how not to be busy, but because he struggled with this. It was one of the books where he's actually trying to learn as he goes, and so I'm gonna write a book because I'm struggling with this. We do struggle with it. But as I said, it's not necessarily wrong to be busy. Imagine going on a mission trip, getting your visa, passport, you know, you got your passport and your visa, maybe some immunizations, taking time off work, making necessary preparations. And imagine going and then things aren't ready and just sitting around, just talking to somebody uh, right before 
right before the service, said, yeah, I was in, I was in Brazil, and when I was there, man, I was busy. They, they were making me do all kinds of stuff. And he said, wow, you know, but it was good. It's, it's good to be busy. You know what? Some, we need to look at our life as a mission trip because that's what it is. It's good to do things if they're the best things. Think about Jesus' life. Here we have a, a divine mission trip. He's come to obey the will of God, to obey the will of his Father. And here on this Thursday, we find that he's extremely busy. There's a lot going on. He came on a mission and used his time to accomplish God's will. And we call it Maundy Thursday, this week. In, I know it's confusing. I was telling people, I'm preaching a Monday Thursday service on Sunday. And they're like, wait a minute, what are you talking about? There's too many days. So today's Sunday, so here we are. We're talking about the Thursday of Jesus' life, the day before the crucifixion, and then the resurrection. And we call it Maundy Thursday. What's that? Well, it relates to the Latin where we get our word mandate. Because on that day, Jesus gave a mandate to the disciples or a command. It's the same idea, right? He, he mandated to them. He commanded to them in John 13, 34 to love one another. He says, a new commandment I give you that you love one another. So that's where we get the term. So we're looking at Jesus' life. And we see that it's extremely busy. This, this Passion Week, and particularly this Thursday. What did Jesus do? Well, he hosted an extravagant feast, he completed a service project, delivered a sermon, dealt with an interpersonal conflict, had an intense prayer time, was betrayed by a close friend, attacked by a mob, taken to court and thrown in jail. That was all after the sun went down. Or maybe to put it in more biblical language, he celebrated the Passover feast while instituting the Lord's Supper. He washed the feet of the disciples. He delivered what we call the farewell discourse. Jesus instructs and teaches his disciples. He prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, was betrayed by Judas, was arrested by a mob, and then was denied by Peter and taken to the high priest and before the Sanhedrin as a prisoner. A lot happened. If you look at the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they have about 60 verses for each of those. And then John has about 180 verses. Altogether, more than 360 verses in the Bible are about this evening, this Thursday evening. There's a lot there. And one of the things we find in the Bible is when it dedicates a lot of time to something, it's saying it's important. Pay attention. I mean, you think about the, the Gospels. About half of the Gospels are about Jesus' last week. His life. They're emphasizing all the rest of his life, half, and almost the second half is his last week. When the Bible uses a lot of space, there's a lot written on it, it's telling us this is important. And on this day, there's a lot going on. And so we need to pay attention to what God has for us today. Now, just to review, we've had, uh, this is the fourth message we, we've talked about we had Lazarus Saturday, and we had Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. And then we had Fig Monday, Jesus curses the fig tree, 
and he cleanses the temple. And then we had Holy or Teaching Tuesday where he's battling with the Pharisees and he, he, uh, they, they try to trap him and he uh, declares that they're, they're hypocrites. And then he teaches about his return. And then Spy Wednesday where, Jesus, where, where Judas decides to betray Jesus, Judas, Jesus you get that right, and um, goes to the uh, Jewish leaders. And here we find ourselves on this Thursday the day before the crucifixion. Don't have time to go into everything, so what I wanna do this morning is highlight four events and four things that we can learn from the life of Jesus. So we're gonna look at the, the Last Supper, and then we're gonna look at the foot washing, the farewell discourse, and then Jesus' prayer in the garden. We'd go through them fairly quickly, but I wanna draw out some important lessons for us. So we're gonna start in Matthew 26, and then we'll work our way to John and then back to Matthew. So first, we think about the Lord's Supper. By celebrating the Lord's Supper, Jesus demonstrated the significance of his upcoming sacrifice. Celebrating the Lord's Supper, Jesus demonstrated the significance of his upcoming sacrifice. Let's look at Matthew chapter 26 and verse 26. It says, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. You see, that night Jesus was celebrating the Passover, now, you think about the Passover, we have to go to the Old Testament when the people of Israel are in bondage in Egypt. And remember, there, there's a series of 10 plagues. The 10th plague was the death of the firstborn. And Moses instructs the people of Israel to, to kill a lamb, sprinkle the blood on the posts of your door. And when, the, when God sends the angel of death, he will pass over. Judgment will not come because there's a covering and you will be spared. And then Moses then leads the people of Israel out of bondage into the promised land. You see, the Passover represented their redemption, their forgiveness. And so here you have Jesus as they're celebrating this Passover meal. And normally they would, as they were eating, they would, they would talk about the different elements of the food and drink and say, this, this, these bitter herbs represent our time in Egypt. And this unleavened bread reminds us how quickly we left. And what Jesus is doing is he's reinterpreting these elements in light of the fulfillment because we know that the blood of bulls and goats and lambs could never take away sins. John saw Jesus, remember, and he said, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus is now reinterpreting the Passover and he says, I am the fulfillment of this. And so you see this bread, which is broken for you. This, is, this represents my body. And so he's talking about his upcoming death on the cross. I will be broken for you. And then he takes the cup and he says, this, this, this wine represents my blood. It's the blood of the covenant. You know, in the Old Testament, Leviticus 17, 11 says that the life of the flesh is in the blood. 
It says in that, in that verse, and I have, given it to, I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is by the blood that makes atonement by the life. The life. Jesus is talking about how he will give his life for us. He says it's poured out for you. This is not just a pouring out. This represents, this is Old Testament sacrificial language. Jesus is saying, my blood will be poured out just as a, that lamb was slain and its blood was poured out. I will give my life for you for the forgiveness of sins. You will be forgiven because I will bear your sin. This is so beautifully represented in Isaiah 53. It talks about how Christ, this prophecy about this Messiah who will come, who will bear our sins. It says he was wounded for our transgressions. He takes our place. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. He takes our place. He bears our burden. He gives his life for us. And so he says, this is the sign of the new covenant. You know, in the Old, in the old Testament, when there was a, a new covenant was enacted, there was blood. Exodus 24, 8 says, Moses took the blood and he threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And Jesus is saying, this is the blood of the new covenant. This was prophesied, right, in Jeremiah 31. It says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with you. I will put my law within you. I'll write it on your hearts. I will be your God. You will be my people, and I will forgive your sins. And so, as recorded in Luke's gospel, Jesus takes the cup and he says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And so every time, just as we will this morning, take the Lord's Supper, we are proclaiming that which is most important, the very heart of our faith that says, we deserve the punishment and Christ bore it for us. It's a, what we call it, a nonverbal proclamation of the gospel. It, it is the gospel. Christ broken for us. We receive forgiveness. And so on that, on that night, Jesus reinterprets the Passover feast. He talks about how he will be sacrificed on their behalf. Second, we move, out, we move to John 13. Jesus washes the disciples' feet. And what we find is that by washing the disciples' feet, Jesus demonstrated true humility. There we read in John 13, verse 4, that Jesus rose from supper, seeing that no one was there, no one else washed the, their feet, as was the custom. 
So he took it upon himself. He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Why why did he do this? What's going on here? How is this significant? Interestingly, if you read the first three verses before this, uh, reading verse four, sometimes called the, the, the prologue. These three verses give us incredible information about what, what Jesus is doing. Let's look at that. And what we find is that Jesus' humility was demonstrated even though he knew the cross awaited him. He knew it. Before the Passover feast, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, he knew it. Think about that. With the heavy burden of the crucifixion and paying for the sins of his people, knowing that was coming, he humbles himself, put, puts others before him. Earlier he said, you know, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And now he demonstrates that. But certainly he knew what, was, what awaited him. He actually told the disciples at least three times recorded in the gospels. He told them before this, he said, I am going to Jerusalem. I will be delivered over to the Jews. I will then be delivered over to the Gentiles and I will be beaten and mocked and flogged and I will be killed, but on the third day I will rise. We also see that Jesus' humility was the outward expression of his love. Verse one goes on to say, having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end. Twice it declares his love. He loved them, he loved them to the end. You notice the connection here. He loved them, he served them. He loved them so he humbles himself himself and, and washes their feet. Do you know there's a connection between love and humility? We show humility and service when we love somebody. If I tell my wife, I love her, I love you, I love her, and then I don't do anything, she's going to doubt. She, she would have good reason to doubt that. Think about, think about verse, you know, John 3.16, what does it say? God so loved the world that he gave his son. How about 1 John 3.16? You know that one. Not as, not as well known, but, but just as good. It says, for this is love. For this, this is how we know love, that he laid down his life. God, the father, loved, he sent his son. The son loved, he laid down his life. The son loved, he humbles himself, washes the disciples' feet. There's a connection. If we're struggling with humility and, and, and serving, it could be a reflection on our love. And specifically, Jesus says I've, I, I, that he loved them, or John records that he loved them to the end. Probably referring to the end of his life, to the cross, that he his love expressed itself by laying down his life for others. As a matter of fact, Jesus would go on to say this, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life 
for his friends. We also see that Jesus' humility was shown even to the one who would betray him. It's one thing to do it to the disciples who loved him back. It's another thing to do it to wash the feet of one who would betray him. It says in in verse two, during supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus was willing to show love, to express humility, even to the one who would betray him. And, And John tells us Jesus knew. Verse 11 says he knew who would betray him. Earlier in John chapter six, he says, I have chosen you, the 12, and yet one of you is the devil. Jesus knew what was in the heart of Judas and he still served him. I like what commentator D.A. Carson says. He says, with such power and status at his disposal, we might have expected Jesus to defeat the devil with an immediate and flashy confrontation and to devastate Judas with an unstoppable blast of divine wrath. Instead, he washes his disciples' feet, including the feet of the betrayer. Jesus is truly humble. Have you ever seen somebody, have you ever witnessed this? Hopefully you weren't part of it. Have you ever seen somebody, maybe they're, they're super nice to their wife or to their husband and their kids, and then all of a sudden they turn around and they're just mean and vicious and rude to somebody at a hotel or a restaurant. And you're like, whoa, did not see that one coming. They were so nice and kind and polite. And then all of a sudden when somebody disagreed with them, they just attacked. Not, not Jesus. He's not, he, this is not some, some superficial humility, some feigned meekness. This is authentic humility. And what does Jesus tell us? That we should love our enemies, that we should pray for those who persecute us. You see, Jesus demonstrates true humility. We also see his humility, that his humility was rooted in his relationship with his heavenly father. This is, this is so important. Notice in verse three, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. What's John telling us here? He's saying his humility was rooted in his relationship with his Father. He knew that all things were were given into his hands. He had come from God. He was going back to God. He knew who he was. And when you know who you are, you can be humble. We all know that. We're saying we see somebody acting, you know, arrogant and proud. Oh, they're insecure, obviously, because you know they're acting that way. Hum- true humility is based on the reality of knowing our position in Christ. And here, Jesus gives his disciples an example. He says, "I'm giving you an example to follow. If we truly understand our relationship with God, it will help us to be humble." If, you, if we understand that we are adopted into his family, that we are his children, that we are his sons and daughters, and that we have an inheritance, we, that we are co-heirs with Christ, 
If we truly understand that, it will help us to be humble. We, we, we don't need to make a great name for ourselves. You don't need to do that if your name's written in the Lamb's book of life. You, you don't have to. You, you, don't have to, you don't have to seek to elevate yourself if you know that already you are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. You don't, you don't have to impress others if you know that you only have one master who knows your hearts. And here Jesus demonstrates humility. But we, we also note that this act of humility is more than that, just washing the feet of the disciples. It foreshadows his greatest act of humility on the cross. And so Jesus with his disciples, he institutes the, this, the Lord's Supper, this meal reinterpreting the Passover. He washes his disciples' feet and then he instructs them in John, the end of John 13, and then 14, 15, 16, 17. We won't go, I'm not going to go into great detail, but I want to highlight something here. And that is, by instructing his disciples, Jesus demonstrated his love for them. He has a lot on his mind, a lot on his heart, as we'll see in the Garden of Gethsemane. And yet he takes time to instruct his disciples, to tell them what they need to to hear. He's concerned about them. He's going to be leaving. Things, things are going to happen that's going to disrupt them. And so he does a number of things. I want to highlight three different themes that we find in this. Um, and I'm going I'm to read them. And I, as I'm reading them, I just want you to listen and to see, Lord, what is it that you have, what, what is it that I need to hold on to, to today? Because Jesus is going to, first he's going to encourage his disciples. And he's encouraging them because he's going to give them some difficult teaching. And then he's also going to instruct them on things that they, they need to do. Okay, so the first thing he does is this. He gives them words of comfort and encouragement. Listen to what he says. Let not your hearts be troubled. And then he talks about how he's going to the Father and he's going to prepare a place for us so that where he is, we can be also. He says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. <clears throat> he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. He said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you will and it will be done for you. No longer do I call you servants, he said. For the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And then he says, take heart. I have overcome the world. He encourages disciples. They need to hear this. You see, biblical preaching and teaching and counseling and instruction to children, we, tell, we need to tell them things that are true because it's good for them. Sometimes we need to encourage them. 
And sometimes we need to share things that are difficult. And Jesus does this. He, he tells them, I am going away. He says, because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. He says, a little while and you will see me no longer. And behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each of you to his home, and leave me alone. And in the world you will have tribulation. Jesus loves the disciples enough to let them know the truth of what will happen. But he also encourages them. And then he gives them a call to action in, this, in these chapters. You'll see that he's often instructing them. They need to do certain things. The first thing he tells them to do is, in chapter 14, verse 1, believe in God. Believe also in me. He tells them, if you love me, you will keep my commandments and abide in me. He tells them to love one another as I have loved you. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you go and bear fruit. What is it that speaks most to you? Do you need a word of encouragement? Jesus speaks these words to us. Maybe you need a word of challenge, something that's true that you need to hear. Or maybe there's something the Lord is calling you to do. May we hear his voice and respond. After the this farewell discourse to the disciples. He then leads them after they sung a hymn, of course. Should, I didn't say that in the first service. I, I needed to throw that out there for Daniel to you know, make him happy. They sung a hymn, right? And then he leads them to the Garden of Gethsemane where with his disciples, and then he takes Peter, James, and John and asks them to pray, and he goes and prays. So as we now think back to and turn back to Matthew 26. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, starting in verse 36. And when we notice that, as we, as we look at this, that he is sorrowful, that he's experiencing great pain. Uh, verse 37 says that he, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. It's, Jesus states in the next verse, my soul is sorrowful even to death. Luke adds he was in agony and that he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And Matthew says that when he prayed, he, he fell on his face and prayed. A posture of desperation. Why? Why was Jesus feeling and experiencing such pain and anguish? Well, look at verse 39. He tells us, he says, if it is possible, this is his prayer, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Notice the reference to the cup. What is he talking about? You see, the pain and anguish and agony that he's experiencing is because he knows that it's more than just crucifixion that will take place. In the Old Testament, the cup is a reference to God's wrath. It's in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, 
and Lamentations and Ezekiel. It's a reference to the wrath of God. He knows he will experience his own father's wrath. Why? Because God is holy and just and must punish sin. And as he bears the sin, our sin upon him, he experiences something more than crucifixion, the very wrath of God. He takes our place. We receive his righteousness. Now notice this. In the midst of his pain and anguish, Jesus prays. The son of God is praying so that he will be obedient to God's will. What does that tell us? You know what it tells me? That prayer is the pathway to obedience. Jesus is demonstrating that. Prayer is the pathway to obedience. Maybe there's something you're struggling with, haven't been able to gain victory over. Well, how much are you praying about that? Jesus three times goes back. Disciples are sleeping, goes back. Disciples are sleeping, goes back. Prayer is the pathway of obedience. So Jesus prays and is able then to submit to God's will, even though he knows it will be difficult. And by the way, notice, this is not the first time that Jesus prays that evening. It's actually the third time he prayed. He prayed in uh, John 17, the farewell discourse, that whole chapter, John 17, is sometimes called the high priestly prayer. Jesus prays for disciples, for others, he prays. And then in Luke's gospel, Jesus approaches Peter and the disciples, and he says, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. And now, on this busy Thursday, before his crucifixion, he goes to the garden to pray. You should never be too busy to pray. You should be busy because you pray. Never be too busy to pray. No, we should be busy, but busy doing the most important things. We should be busy because we pray. And Jesus prayed. He submitted himself to God's will. And then you know what happened. After he prayed in the garden, he was betrayed by Judas, one of his 12 disciples. He was arrested by a mob. He was denied by Peter. He was taken as a criminal in front of the high priest and then in front of the synagogue. The next day he was tried, he was crucified, and he was buried. Praise God that we have a sacrificial, humble, loving, obedient Savior. But every turn is obedient to God. Praise God that he humbled himself, became obedient even to the point of death, death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name above every other name that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Now this morning, we, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're actually gonna come back to where we started. And Jesus, in that Passover meal, and he 
institutes the Lord's Supper. And I just want to remind us of a, of a few things before we, we take the supper together. That the, the Lord's Supper, it, it points in several directions, and I think this will help us as we prepare. First, it points us inward. It reminds us as we come to the table that we need to come in humility and repentance. Paul says, let a, let a person examine himself. We should examine our own hearts and see if we're truly coming, appreciating the sacrifice that Jesus has done. We're not at looking for perfection, we're looking for confession and repentance, knowing that we have fallen short. But this celebration is restricted to believers. Even as Jesus gave it to his disciples, I like what Dale Bruner says. He says, the supper is for disciples and only for disciples. It is not a meal for general consumption for all or any who come to church independent of the recipient's faith in Jesus. If one cannot honestly identify oneself as a disciple of Jesus, he or she should not take the supper. It points us inward. For those of us who have made a profession of faith, who say that Jesus is our Lord and Savior, the supper is for us. We come with repentance. But it also points backwards. Because on that night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread, he broke it, and he said, this bread represents my body, which is broken for you. And then after, afterwards, he took the cup, and he says, this cup represents my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. See, it points us back to Jesus' death for us. It also points upward because Jesus says it's for the forgiveness of sins and when we realize our sins are forgiven and reflect upon that, we're gonna look upward with thankfulness to God for the forgiveness that we have received. And then it also points forward to the future fullness of the kingdom when it comes. Jesus says, I won't, I won't drink this again until I drink it with you anew in my Father's kingdom. And Paul said, whenever you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're looking forward. Father, we thank you.